0: You're listening to the special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Bob Jensen. Bob is a professor at the School of Journalism at the University of Texas at Austin. Bob's written a book called The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men, and it's out through Spinifex Press. I chatted with Bob about the positives of radical feminism for all of us. As promised, we have a very special guest in the studio, Professor Bob Jensen, who joins us, and he's made the trip from America to do a bit of a tour um, of Australia. And thanks, Bob, for joining us.
1: I'm actually here to, to ask for political asylum. Anybody following American <laughs> politics would understand why. Will somebody please give me a home here?
0: <laughs> I think we'd be very open to that. <laughs> I certainly would based on this book because... Um, Uh, it's direly needed and I think it opens up a discussion and it's quite thought-provoking in terms of I'm sure the title even in in and of itself is thought-provoking and has certainly got people interested in our chat. It's called The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men and it's out through Spinifex Press which is a Melbourne publisher. Mm -hmm. So Bob, I want to talk about I guess a range of parts in your book, but I want to bring it back to, first of all, let's just set out some terminology, which you already do in the book, but I just want to do that for our discussion. So sex being biology and that being male or female, you know, XX Mm -hmm. chromosome or XY chromosome and then gender as being a social construct.
1: Right. This goes back to the 1970s when feminists were resisting the assertion that women were by nature submissive, for instance, and they made that distinction between biological sex, which is, of course, part of our reproduction and the biological realities, and the cultural construction of gender that is masculinity and femininity. So, we can distinguish between male-female and masculine-feminine, and of course, those masculine-feminine norms – are product of history, of power. And in our society, we're talking about the power of patriarchy. So I go back to those early, very foundational ideas, which have been so useful for me in trying to understand who I am as a man in a patriarchal society.
0: Exactly and let's talk about patriarchy Mm. as well so we've got a clear idea of what that is and Mm. there have been a range of um, terms or ways of looking at patriarchy. Um, The Greek meaning as you point out is rule of the father which you say can be narrowly understood as the organisation of a human community from family to a larger broader society that gives a male ruler dominance over other men and overall gives men control over women. Mm-hmm. You also say that it's been expounded upon over the, the decades and, um, and that Kate Millett was one of those yeah. academics. What, how do you conceive of patriarchy?
1: Well, my shorthand definition would just be institutionalized male dominance. And of course, that can take various forms. Those forms will change between societies. They'll change over time within a society. Uh, clearly, patriarchy in 2017 in the United States is not what it was in 1958 when I was born. Clearly, patriarchy in the United States doesn't look like it looks like in Saudi Arabia. But, you know, if you think about systems of illegitimate authority let's call them systems where one group has power over another Uh, in the united states we talk routinely about white supremacy about the economic power of rich over poor and capitalism well these are not static systems they change with time and they adapt to challenges and so patriarchy was challenged in in the u.s the first wave of feminism which won the right to vote in 1920 the second wave of feminism in the 1960s uh, So no one would doubt that the society has changed. After all, we just had a presidential election in which a woman was contesting for the most powerful political position in the country. Uh, But patriarchy asserts itself. And a lot of my own work has been around what I call the sexual exploitation industries, pornography, prostitution, stripping, the ways that men routinely buy and sell women's bodies for sexual pleasure. And on that front, we've lost ground actually over the last three decades i've been studying this uh it's a far more misogynist corrosive and dangerous culture in a lot of ways so you know it's a complex world and this is one of those things we have to to deal with in that complexity
0: yes and presumably the internet has only accelerated that issue in terms of its widespread availability
1: yeah when i started studying pornography from the feminist anti-pornography perspective That is not a religious or conservative critique of pornography, but a feminist perspective that said, let's foreground the harm to women that comes in the production of pornography and the use of pornography. Uh, When I started studying that in the late 1980s, before the Internet, there was already a clear pattern in the way that with time and technology, the the misogynist and, and also, by the way, racist component of pornography was intensifying. The internet just took it into the stratosphere. Uh, people who study this talk about the three A's, access, accessibility, anonymity, and affordability. So, the access to sexually explicit material, much of which degrades women, became easier, more anonymous, and more affordable. And, of course, we know what the consequences are. Uh, an explosion of the amount of pornography, the The kind of corrosive nature of that pornography and also, by the way, a more dramatic effect on the primarily male users. Obviously, men and women both use pornography, but it's primarily a a, a genre for men. And men themselves are now reporting that this addictive-like use of pornography online is undermining their own abilities to be fully human, to be mm. in a relationship, all these sorts of things.
0: And we'll pick up on that um, a little bit later in the conversation. I want to bring it back to the historical <laughs> origins of patriarchy, because as you mentioned in the book, you say, well, we all think of the caveman era and we go, oh, well, you know, men were out hunting, gathering food and women were out looking after the kids, um, reproducing, which was their sole uh, function and and hence, of course, this unequal power relationship began and patriarchy started. But that's actually not the case, is it?
1: Well, me, Hunter, Amy, you woman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, there, there's this assertion over and over again that human societies have always been patriarchal. And it's simply not true. The The patriarchal period of of human history is only the last few thousand years. Prior to that, in hunter-gatherer societies, there was... Sex differentiation. Women, of course, bear children, and that means that in that world, uh, women tended to do more of the gathering, men tended to do more of the hunting. And in this world, you know, that's obsessed with guns and male power, we assume the hunter is always in charge. But in fact, the majority of the calories, the food that came in those hunting-gathering societies was gathered by women, The roles were differentiated, but they weren't unequal inherently. So the idea that there is nothing but patriarchy in human history is simply not true. Now, how patriarchy developed, we're talking about prehistory before written records, and it's speculative to some degree. But anthropologists and historians look at the development of this, and the fact that there was a pre-patriarchal human history means almost by definition there could be a post-patriarchal patriarchal human future. And so when people say, well, you can't do anything about it, it's just the way people are, that's contradicted by history and to give in to that I think is to abandon the future.
0: Indeed and I want to look at also the the ev- evolution or creation of patriarchy which anthropologists speculated and believed to have been and it, it is based in evidence when mm. it's not mere speculation right. but they believe that it started with the advent of the agricultural society yeah. and this dominance or, or creation of a supply thing where people are trying to you know mm-hmm. get more labor and um, ensure that they can actually keep creating more right. food which right. means if you have more children you have more labor yeah. and they started creating these kind of marriage alliances could you share a little bit more about that evolution
1: yeah that particular perspective comes from a feminist historian named Gerda Lerner who wrote a very important book called the creation of patriarchy it's one of the approaches to understanding it but you're you're point is well taken that uh, human history changed in a very dramatic way with the invention of agriculture. And that's only ten to 12,000 years ago. And again, in the modern world, we tend to have a very short uh, uh, time frame. But human beings have been around about 200,000 years, and this agricultural era is only 5% of our evolutionary history. And what's so important about that is when people started settling and growing food, intervening into ecosystems to actually control the production of food, that created food surpluses, which created the power that comes with controlling food surpluses. And basically, uh, not to simplify human history too much, but everything has been going downhill ever since. (laughs) The irony is that we think of civilization when people say well you know the rise of civilization it's in that period after agriculture but it's in the rise of civilization that we see hierarchy the assertion that one group of people has a right to control other people and one of these foundational hierarchies is of course patriarchy male control of in fact male claims to own women's bodies especially their reproductive power and their sexuality again Across the board, people will tell you, well, hierarchy is inevitable. It's part of history. You can't do anything about it. But going back and, as you're doing, carefully thinking about where it emerges, we see that, in fact, hierarchy is not inevitable, which means it's not immutable. We can do something about it. And I think the importance of a feminist critique of patriarchy, uh, which – let's face it is not popular in mainstream culture these days the importance of it is it takes us back to this foundational era and reminds us that there are other possibilities not only around the male assertion of supremacy over women but in other realms as well i come from the united states where we are still struggling with white supremacy i know you don't have that problem in australia
0: oh we still have some issues with uh, ah, okay, yeah. that yeah,
1: even, i've been around long enough to know That's
0: yeah yeah. But, yeah but
1: but and in, in modern economics, the assertion of the natural dominance of the wealthy over the poor. When you look at world affairs, the assertion of a natural dominance of Europe and its offshoots over the rest of the world. And in some sense, the overarching question is about human claims to be supreme over and dominant over the larger living world, which has created the ecological crises that now really threaten our ability to live on the planet. So, The thing that is so important for me about feminism and feminist critiques of patriarchy is they take us back to ask that foundational question, are hierarchies inevitable? The radical feminist answer is no, and not only in terms of gender and sex, but in terms of all these other ways that we divvy up the world and give some people a whole lot more than others.
0: Absolutely. And I'll take it it out a bit more. You say that if we consider the 2.5 million years of the homo genus, our direct ancestors, if we're looking that far back, patriarchy is less than 0.5% of our history. It's quite mind boggling to think that there is another way um, that we can change. But I guess the point of your book and what you draw out in each of these issues is that it's really confronting and very painful. And that brings me to your own personal experience and how you came to radical feminism in particular because as you map out in the book, there is liberal uh, feminism and I say liberal with a small L Mm -hmm. um, in in the Australian context as well as postmodern feminism. Mm -hmm. Could you share with us how this came about, your exploration of radical feminism personally?
1: Well, like most of my life, the simple answer is dumb luck. Uh, I I was a, a working journalist in newspapers in the United States and became a little restless and went back to graduate school. And I was interested in freedom of expression, the question of free speech. And at the time, in the late 80s, one of the really important debates about free speech was around this question of pornography. And like most people, I thought there was a conservative religious critique of porn and then a secular defense of porn. And I would have put myself in that secular c- camp. And I really knew nothing about feminism. And so I had to read. And like most men, I was socialized to think feminists were kind of crazy and feminism was some marginal enterprise by these crazy people and nothing I had to worry about. And so I'd been conditioned to make fun of it, literally, mock to mock feminism. The problem was when I started reading, I realized that I had been a caricature of feminism, and it was the radical feminist perspective that I was most drawn to, partly for intellectual reasons, I thought it it made a compelling case, but also for personal reasons, it answered my own questions, because like a lot of men, I I grew up feeling I was never really man enough, I had been a short, skinny, effeminate kid, so in my case it was quite dramatic, I was literally terrified my entire childhood uh, by lots of things, including other boys and men and i thought i just didn't measure up i thought it was a problem that i had and then radical feminism says well wait here are these gendered norms that come out of patriarchy that say men must always be in control which means men must always be aimed at conquest which means men must be aggressive which means inevitably violence and i was never good at any of that and so radical feminism not only gave me a way to think about the world, especially the way women and girls are injured in this world, which is, of course, crucial and central to the, the enterprise. It gave me a way to think about myself. And all of a sudden, new ways of being in the world opened up. And so uh, I always say that the, the argument from justice for radical feminism is very compelling. If you claim to have moral principles around things like dignity and equality, radical feminism is a way to make those principles real in the world there's an argument from justice but for me there's also an argument from self-interest not in the narrow sense but in the larger sense and that's why i say in some sense radical feminism helped me understand i had a choice i could be a man in all that that means in patriarchy and i could puff my chest up and posture and seek that kind of control over the world i could be a man in patriarchy or i could be a human being but i couldn't be both because the the gendered norms for men in patriarchy limit your ability to be fully human
0: and that's the point—is that you say that radical feminism allows men mm-hmm. and women to yeah. be fully human, yeah. and um, and it's really interesting. I think that it brings out so much of um, humanism and the commonalities mm-hmm. that we have. Although you you say yes, there are biological differences in yeah. the sense that women can bear children and reproduce and must, you know, often nurse those children to varying extents, and men cannot possibly do that. That's the extent mm-hmm. of what we. Absolutely no, for sure. And then these other differences are c- entirely socially constructed and uh, mm. damaging to yeah. men as much as, or maybe not as much. I mean, it's hard to do yeah. who's worse off. Let's not like make it a competition. But you say that yeah. radical feminism is a gift for men.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what are the real differences between male and female human beings? Well, as you point out, there are some obvious you know, physiological differences. And when we look at each other, it may be that some of those physiological differences mean we have slightly different emotional tendencies. But the fact is, we don't know much about that. And in patriarchy, we are always assuming that these differences exist, that they are hard and fast, and that they must then cast us in different roles. All right. So, if we reject that, then a whole world opens up of exploration. And as you pointed out, my whole life up until the time I started studying feminism, I was trained to believe that feminism was a threat to me, that if you were a feminist, whatever you were going to do, it wasn't going to work out well for me. And you might actually have a, you know, a sharp knife hidden somewhere where it would really not work out well for me. Well, what I realized was this was a gift. This was a way for me to transcend these rigid, repressive, and reactionary gender norms and that's how i think about gender norms in patriarchy they're very rigid they keep us boxed in they're repressive because they keep us from the full extent of our humanity and they're reactionary because they keep this patriarchal machine in place they're not in anybody's interests in a bigger human sense although men do let's face it get certain short-term material benefits from it and I think what I'm arguing essentially as feminists have been arguing for a long time is those short-term material benefits that you get are not worth surrendering your own humanity. And, you know, it's actually a very emotional uh, issue for me in that sense, because uh, I, I struggled a lot, as a, especially as a, as a boy and as a young man, trying to figure out how to fit in. And for those of us who don't want to fit into hierarchy and power and control and domination – You have to find a a political answer, right? Therapy and personal questions matter, but there has to be an overarching way that you understand this system of power is not natural. It's being imposed. And for me, feminism was the first way to understand how to break out of those systems
0: indeed in a similar way that women um have a lot of expectations around their behavior the Mm -hmm. way they dress what they do and think Um, and and that's very much limits individual expression of you know what you believe is true to yourself
1: yeah so we're talking about the effects on men the effects on women are quite obvious Mm. i mean the the way women are policed the way women are constrained and of course the the ever-present threat to women that comes in a violent patriarchal society those things in a sense give women a compelling reason to immediately adopt a feminist perspective and what i'm trying to say is listen for guys who've been told that they shouldn't think about this there are reasons we need to as well
0: yeah and I want to look at this the development of radical feminism and you know your initial exposure to that, and mm. then the next wave, which brought in this kind of individual choice based empowerment um, movement of feminism, which is sometimes looked at as a liberal um feminism and whether I mean men who subscribe to that feminism or at least somewhat support it, are they being helpful or are they hindering the cause?
1: Well, you know. I'm increasingly a cranky old man and I don't want to be lecturing young people, (laughs) but you young people need to listen. Okay. So
0: you are uh, a lecturer, so I think you're allowed, Uh,
1: you know, uh, the, what's sometimes called the third wave of feminism. So the radical feminism that I root myself in comes out of the 1970s and is typically described as part of the second wave. As you point out, third wave feminism Uh, really puts at the center individual choice. And in that way, it's not surprising it's popular because it's consistent with a market based consumer society where everything is about choice. You're told the benefits of, you know, this capitalist consumer society is you get to choose. All right. Sometimes the choice is between, you know, Coke and Pepsi, but it's a choice and that feels good in certain ways, especially if you're in the more affluent sectors of society. But the real question is, what kind of choices are you being offered? And this is why the pornography question is so important, because it's kind of a fault line. The radical feminist critique of pornography steps back and looks at what is the role of pornography in structuring the world we live in. The third wave feminist perspective tends to, and I don't want to caricature it, but tends to look at this as simply something people can choose. All right, choice is important. I'm, you know, a a Democrat in the big sense of the word. And I believe that we want to create political systems in which people choose. But we also want to look at the conditions under which people choose. Right? And so, that's why I find this third wave feminism inadequate. And it reflects the fact that I have a broader politics. I'm anti-capitalist. I, I have written critiques of white supremacy. I've been a critic of US imperialism and is extremely concerned about these ecological crises we referenced earlier. And so, My focus, and the older I get, the more this is true, is on systems, not just on how individuals choose within systems, but how systems structure those choices in the first place. And I think pornography is a very important issue. There's an irony in all of this that the radical feminist critique of pornography pioneered by women like Andrea Dworkin nearly four or five decades ago now uh, has proven to be an accurate account of the direction pornography was heading. There's more of it. It's more cruel and demeaning to women. It's more overtly racist. All the things that these early feminist critics predicted, in fact, turned out to be true. And yet, we don't honor them. We don't take seriously their their arguments. And in, in a lot of ways, this book is, I guess you could call it warmed over Andrea Dworkin. Andrea <laughs> Dworkin, a, an American writer who sadly passed almost a decade ago now, um, she really, in a very early phase of this, saw very clearly what pornography was and it changed my life for the better and a lot of what I write is honoring these women I I often joke that there's not a single original idea in my book which I'm proud of because women who came before me uh, who you know have have cloud this ground and all i'm trying to do is is raise a male voice to say this is what we need to be paying attention to
0: well as as you mentioned there are so many influential feminists that are quoted and referenced in this book i was actually looking at all the footnotes and wondering whether a man would appear and there's a couple but there aren't that many and i'm very pleased to see that there are books that quote so many women and and, reference their work
1: and there are other male writers who have done the same thing, which is pay attention to the work of women. Uh, and I don't shy away from using their work because often it's very helpful. But you know, all of this work has been done by by women. And as a man, it's very important for me to do that. And that's one of the reasons I was so happy to see Spinifex Press interested in the book, because for 26 years now, Spinifex has been publishing those women. It's, it's really kind of an Australian treasure. And I think probably not as widely appreciated in the country, certainly not worldwide as it should be, but really groundbreaking work, early work that was ahead of its time and uh, and it 's very easy for a patriarchal culture to ignore that, so I, I not only want to you know encourage people to think about buying my book i 'm happy if they do but to go online and look at the whole Spin Effects catalog, there's some stunning work there, and it's still going on—really cutting-edge work even today.
0: I'm talking to Professor Bob Jensen, who is uh, a professor at the School of Journalism um, at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's written a book called "The End of Patriarchy: Radi- Radical Feminism for Men." Now, Bob, you reference uh, their pornography, and I mean, you also talk about uh, a couple of other issues that really highlight this dominance and subordination dynamic that exists within patriarchy and how Mm -hmm. it can play out and another one of those is um, in prostitution Mm -hmm. and uh, you talk about the various ways of looking at prostitution and how there's even debate within feminism itself as to whether um, you know people who engage in that work should be called sex workers Mm -hmm. or prostitutes or some other form of Referencing prostitution, you've referenced their already constrained choices and the fact that women often in these situations aren't making a totally free choice. And when are we ever? But in these particular circumstances, you talk, you reference also evidence that suggests that it's often very damaging and dehumanizing for women, yeah. even if not immediately over time, that it can build up and really yeah. be something that's very affecting. Yeah. I mean, can you talk about the aspect of these issues that create? creates the, the subordination and domination, therefore the dehumanizing impact upon women and uh, men also. It's dehumanizing or alienating, as you say, for men.
1: Yeah, I think the first question we would want to ask is, where does the idea of prostitution come from? What? Where, where did it all of a sudden, occur to people that I could buy or sell you for my sexual pleasure. And is that idea consistent with a just society? So when people say, well, it's choice and this, and okay, fine. But let's just deal with that fundamental question. I And I will say this without hesitation. I do not want to live in a society in which some people, a particular class of people, in this case women – can be routinely bought and sold for the sexual pleasure of some other people. I do not see how to construct a just and decent society with that existing. Right? So the idea of prostitution is the problem. Right? Sheila Jeffries, an Australian feminist, wrote a, a very good book by that title. Okay, so we're challenging the fundamental notion that that intimacy, sexuality should be in the market. And again, this reflects a larger problem I have with the idea that everything can be bought and sold in the market. So, it's a a confluence of an anti-capitalist critique as well as a feminist critique of patriarchy. But then let's look at the lives of women who are prostituted. Uh, And there's both research, you know, systematic uh, scholarly research on this, as well as the testimony of women who have left the industry, which I think is the most important testimony, not women who are currently in the sex industry, but women who have been able to get out and reflect on it. Well, here's, I think, one of the most profound uh, Uh, results I've ever seen from a scholarly study it was based on uh, a systematic interview with women on the street and uh, I'm doing it for member but I think it was 67 percent of the women interviewed met the diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder this means that this so-called job the sex work routinely you know devastates people psychologically more than being a soldier or being a police officer which are high stress jobs uh, if you listen to people's stories women's stories what you find is that there are elevated rates of childhood sexual assault which do affect the way we understand our body and our world our our place in the world you find that there are very few women in prostitution who come from wealthy families and have a trust fund waiting right, you find that the women in prostitution have dealt with limited choices most of the women in prostitution surveys show if asked if you had the resources the financial and educational resources to leave prostitution you would you The answer is overwhelmingly yes, 80, 90% of the women say yes. All right, so what kind of choices are we talking about? And then what are the real world experiences of women, especially women on the street, but also women in brothels or women in webcamy? And what you find, and this is also true of women in pornography, that there are psychic and physical consequences to this so-called work. And again, I don't want to live in a world where the idea of prostitution is taken as a given, and I certainly don't want to live in a world where people suffer the injuries that are routine in not only prostitution, but all of the sexual exploitation industries, stripping, pornography, prostitution. And again, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but these are ways that men routinely buy and sell women's bodies for sexual pleasure, and that is, for me, simply inconsistent with a stable, decent human community.
0: Indeed. And you you do say that in this particular area, you're making a moral judgment and it's really difficult for any person to make an, an entirely objective judgment on this particular thing. Mm. But as you say, your priority mm. is about people mm. living fully and having freedom and egalitarianism as part of that. Right.
1: So if I can interrupt, yeah. one of the things people say uh, when I make a case like this, or any man does especially, is who are you to talk? Well, I want to make it clear, I'm not criticizing women who are in the sexual exploitation industries. I'm I'm focusing on men and men's Mm. choices and the way that patriarchy structures all of these choices. The other thing is people are often afraid of being called moralistic because especially from conservative and very religious perspectives, moralism is a kind of finger-waving. You shouldn't do this with your body. When I say there's a moral component to this argument, I don't mean that I'm going to tell you how you should behave sexually. I'm saying that sexuality is part of... a moral code, and everybody has one, right? And I have a certain perspective on where sexuality, I believe, fits in the human experience. And I have a moral perspective on that. So do supporters of pornography and prostitution. So this attempt to say, well, you're just being moralistic, I want to say, okay, well, you tell me about the moral principles that inform your politics. We're, we're often very afraid of talking about morality because it's been narrowed, especially mm-hmm. by conservative forces. Morality is an inescapable part of human life there is moral there are moral principles behind everything we do personally politically and I, I'm I prefer to make those explicit and talk about them rather than pretend that somehow you can live without a moral principle behind what you're doing. That's just silly.
0: It is. And that's what comes out every chapter in this book Mm. is that you're really confronting head on those scary things, the fear, Mm. the things that people are too afraid to face and confront the reality of. And interestingly you talk about and you've just said there that you know sex is different and it's a completely it's very hard to compare that particular experience to anything else in terms of the vulnerability that it opens up between human beings and you do ask well what is sex for and you say that you know there is the aspect of pleasure and there's um other points but what do you think sex is for in this framework that we're discussing.
1: Again, this idea that sex can just be another kind of work. I've done a lot of different kinds of work in my life, you know, uh, shoveling sidewalks, unloading trucks, teaching, writing news stories. None of them bear any resemblance to sexuality. And that's my experience. And if people say, well, that's just you. Well, it's not just me. It's, I think, a common understanding that sex has a distinctive place in the human experience. It's clearly part of reproduction, and it's clearly a way we experience pleasure. But I would argue that if we reduce sex to only reproduction or pleasure pleasure acquisition, we're missing the really deeper way that That intimacy and sexuality are part of the human experience. Now, I'm not going to prescribe the way everybody should understand sex, because there's an incredible variation in the human species. I also think that what sex means in our lives can change over time. What a 16-year-old kid is learning through a, a developing sexuality is very different what a 58-year-old man in a committed relationship is going to understand sex to be for. But I think the vulnerability you mentioned is crucial because one of the distinctive things about sexuality when it works is that we open up to another person. And you know, I don't want to seem overly sentimental. I'm not a big fan of Hollywood romances. I'm not talking about that shallow and superficial kind of romance. I'm talking about the way that we are really moved. and And I think sometimes People are nervous about talking about it because it even in speaking about it, it reveals something about ourselves, uh, and we 're all a little nervous about it. You mentioned fear, and, and when I say that people are afraid of this i 'm not speaking from on a high i 'm afraid of it. I still, after decades of talking about these things, feel very nervous sometimes because no one really has the definitive answer these aren't you know we're not working out algebra problems here we're trying to understand that which is in some sense mystery it's beyond understanding what is the role of sex in human society well think about how much art has been made about sex over the years real art right it's because we we use our artistic our creative capacities to try to understand this ineffable, mysterious part of our lives And that's appropriate. So I I think it's naive to say, here's what sex is for. But to open up the question, I think, is important. It is.
0: And it is thought-provoking to think of it in those very different terms and functions. And really, I want to look just finally at the ideas that you also bring out and you reference uh, at the conclusion that are really poignant about how radical feminism and a critique of patriarchy not only uh, benefits men, but it benefits the planet (laughs) and it's something that we focus on in this show is the idea of the ecosphere and humans place within it and I read an interview um, that you had with uh, I can't remember his name but you were talking about environmentalism and how you're not an environmentalist because it still exerts human dominance over nature and you're talking about humans having a place within nature that isn't about domination
1: yeah Increasingly, a lot of people are are souring on this term environmentalism" because number one it doesn 't tend to be radical enough to deal with the real threats to the planet but it does it does suggest that somehow we are separate from nature, and the obvious point is we are simply a species within nature and different people use different terms to try and describe this, but it, it seems to me that the foundational problem in our environmental troubles is humans declaring that we are supreme over the world and we can do with it what we want because we own the world. The real assertion in the modern world is that human beings literally own the world. And in capitalism, of course, can own every inch of the world. There's nothing that can't be brought into the market. That's a profoundly pathological perspective. We don't own the world, as the old saying goes, in the end, the world owns us. You know, Ashes to ashes, dust to dust is mm. not just a religious phrase. <laughs> it's a recognition that we are part of a larger living world. And just like men have claimed to own women's bodies, we claim to own the earth. And that is a, a disturbing claim. And it leads, you know, if I own this pen and I get mad and throw the pen at the wall, nobody's going to say, oh, you violate, you know, you own th- When you yeah. own things, you assert rights over them. Mm. And that's why, of course, we now at least should be rejecting the right that men can own women. But we have to, I think, move and recognize that human beings claim to own the earth is a very dangerous claim it's woven of course through the entire global economy and that's why the the radical feminist perspective helps me not only deal with sex gender politics but also deal with all of these other questions around race around economies around war and peace and profoundly around ecology
0: Absolutely, I could not agree more. In terms of that power dynamic Mm. that is currently at play, and that it absolutely needs to shift, and hopefully we can continue that discussion, pull out those ideas because that's something I'm certainly focused on. And just finally, you reference and talk about uh, a civil rights uh, activist. Um, Now, correct me if I've got his name wrong. Is it James Baldwin? Yes, correct. Yeah, and you and he does have a a great famous quote, and I'm not sure if you remember the quote off the top of your head, um, but you do talk about it and extend his idea about confronting truth and talking about truth and um, and I'll quote your paraphrase of it to kind of draw it all out you say our task for all of us men and women in whatever endeavors we have chosen is to tell as much of the truth as we can bear and then a little more and then all the rest of the truth, whether we can bear it or not. And that little part at the end is your addition. Yeah. So that we have to not just tell as much as we can bear, but we have to do it yeah. even if it's unbearable.
1: James Baldwin is, like Andrew Dworkin, I think an underappreciated writer from the last half of the 20th century in the US uh, and wrote eloquently, especially about America's inability to come to terms with white supremacy. But that quote was from a, a 1960s essay where he said the role of writers is to tell the truth and then a little more than you can bear. And I think I extended that because at this point in human history we don't have the time or luxury to turn away from difficult truths. And I think when we look as, as you clearly have done, looked at the the state of the larger living world the health of the ecosystems on which after all our own lives depend the news is pretty grim and it's easy to want to turn away from that and believe we're going to invent the next great you know energy device that will save us all and i think those are failed hopes and coming to terms with that seems to be kind of depressing in fact i'm often accused of being depressing <laughs> and maybe i am but
0: or a realist yeah
1: but i think that what we're talking about is an often an unarticulated sense of grief and i'm a big believer that grieving together helps us get through these difficult truths, not because we're going to have easy solutions, but because once we get through that and have grieved, we can at least know the landscape on which we are going to make choices about potential solutions. And to me, there's nothing more important than, in a sense, publicly grieving, sharing that sense of anguish. Uh, It's not just that we're sad about the fact there's pollution in the world. We're talking about a much deeper reaction. And I think it's healthy. It's healthy in individual cases. If a loved one is dying, you don't you know, criticize people for grieving. Right? It's a part of coming to terms with the world. And I, I think there's nothing more important emotionally to do today than to be able to grieve collectively.
0: And uh, we'll leave it on that beautiful and poignant note, um, Bob. Thank you so much for giving us your time and valuable insights into this issue. It's just been absolutely wonderful.
1: Well, thank you, Amy. This is one of the most uh, in-depth and thoughtful discussions I've had about the book. I had to leave the US and come to Australia to find people who, <laughs> who do this. So <laughs> thank you, Australia, it. and thank you, Amy, for your your comments
0: it's my pleasure and if people would like to see you speak um we'll note that uh, actually the readings event in carlton tonight is sold out which is wonderful yeah. um but you are elsewhere you're also touring regional australia and yeah. you're back in melbourne so if people want to see you what can they do
1: right the the readings bookshop in carlton event is sadly sold out and that was tonight right i'm going to be back on thursday june 1st at rmit uh, to talk with a panel including some great Australians uh, that's at 5:30 30 uh, on the RMIT campus but the the room has not yet been assigned because again luckily there's been a lot of interest so they're going to move it to a bigger room so you can check the spin effects website where there's a calendar of my events in Australia
0: and we'll retweet that for everyone great. thanks so much no worries Thank you, Bob. That was Professor Bob Jensen, who is from the School of Journalism at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's written an essential book. Uh, It's called The End of Patriarchy Radical Feminism for Men. It's thought provoking, it's logical, it's philosophical, and it's very well informed by feminist thought that's been built and, I guess, created by women over many, many decades. So um, I highly recommend checking it out.